from the studios of KALW San Francisco. I'm Angie Coiro, and this is In Deep, one full hour on one intriguing topic. When someone sits you down and tries to explain the QAnon conspiracy story, or that of Pizzagate or Seth Rich, you might find yourself grinning or even laughing out loud, and the explanation of those tales can be funny in a very grim sort of way. But all of them are dangerous, too, politically and in terms of flesh and blood. In fact, in 2017, Edgar Madison Welch convinced to his heart that Democrats were holding child sex slaves captive, shot up the inside of a pizza restaurant he believed was at the heart of the plot. He even recorded a goodbye tape to his kids in case he didn't survive his own heroic act. At Welch's trial, the owner of the pizzeria went right to the heart of the matter. He said, I do hope that one day, in a more thoughtful world, every one of us will remember this day as an aberration, when the world went mad and fake news was real. Fake news is at the heart of today's hour on conspiracy theories, as are psychology and politics. Who buys into these stories? Who's spreading them? To what end? Whether those who swear by them can be persuaded to see more sanely before they go somewhere with a loaded gun or head to the voting booth. My guests this hour are Dr. Nancy Rosenblum of Harvard and Dr. Joseph Pierre of UCLA. Nancy is a co-author of the new book, A Lot of People Are Saying, The New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy. She's the Harvard University Senator Joseph Clark Professor of Ethics in Politics and Government Emerita. She specializes in historical and contemporary political thought. Joe Pierre is a health sciences clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Now, his work at Psychology Today's website is of particular interest today. Look for his column there, Psych Unseen, Psych Unseen at psychologytoday.com. Thanks both for joining us. Thank you. It's good to have you. So to kick us off, you know, I was struggling for a, a terse, accurate characterization of QAnon, which has so many tendrils, it's hard to explain. And I actually found it on Wikipedia, which is not always the right place to start. But you can't talk about political conspiracies without talking about QAnon. So let's give it a go. Wikipedia says QAnon is a far right conspiracy theory alleging that a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles running a global sex trafficking ring is plotting against President Donald Trump, who in turn is battling them, leading to a day of reckoning involving mass arrests of journalists and politicians. It adds, no part of the theory is based on fact. And thank goodness for that last bit there. Uh, Joe Pierre, let's go first to why anyone would believe that. You put it really well in one of your columns, You said QAnon is a curious modern phenomenon that is part conspiracy theory, part religious cult, and part role-playing game. Can you go into that? Sure. Uh, And let me just back up for a second and talk about conspiracy theories a little bit more generally. Uh, And it's certainly the most frequent question I get. Why do people believe in such outlandish things? Mm -hmm. Uh, And my answer, first of all, is that this is probably a general vulnerability that we all have. we all have some vulnerability to believing in some kind of conspiracy theory. And surveys have consistently shown that about half the American population believes in at least one. So this is definitely a normal phenomenon. Um, Psychology research has devoted a fair amount of effort over the past decade trying to figure out if there are idiosyncratic quirks of people who believe in them. Uh, And some of those quirks have been found to be associated with belief in conspiracy theories, things like need for closure, need for certainty, uh, the need to feel unique, lack of analytical thinking, 
um, a, a lot of different what, what we call cognitive quirks. But I think that's actually not the best way to think about conspiracy theories. I don't think it, it's as helpful to think about belief in conspiracy theories at the level of the individual. I think it's more helpful to think about it in terms of how we relate in society. And so I think the key, the key to conspiracy theory belief is really a two-part process. And the first part is mistrust, mistrust specifically in authoritative sources of information. And the second part is exposure to misinformation or disinformation. And so if we are mistrustful, and there's a lot of mistrust going around these days, whether we're talking about government or otherwise, when we're mistrustful, we tend to then reach out for counter explanations uh, and tend to glom onto them, despite the fact that sometimes they're false. Uh, let's talk to uh, Nancy, and this is this is key, the main part of our discussion today, which is the difference between who's underlying a conspiracy theory when it's, you know, a couple people who think that extraterrestrials are walking among us in government positions. And when you have people connected by the Internet and goaded on by those who are in power. So paint that part of the picture for us. The, the, the first thing I'd say about all of that is that uh, conspiracy theory is as old as politics. And a conspiracy theory is what any theory is. It's an explanation of something, right? And in order to put together an explanation that's rational, you have evidence and you have argument and you find patterns and you set out to prove that there's malicious intent behind some event. And one of the interesting things about conspiracism today is that we now have conspiracy without the theory. This mm. is important. It's something really quite new. I, if you like, we can trace it back to the Internet and other things. But I think that the phenomenon itself is worth, you know, a, a few words. Yeah. That is, it, it's not a theory. It's a sheer assertion. The election is rigged. That's all you need. No argument, no evidence. There's a dispensation with any of the kind of ordinary thinking that we that we use. Now, conspiracy theories are sometimes true and sometimes false, but they're always this business of research, right, and evidence. If you look at architects and engineers for 9-11 truth, it's full of the temperature of jet fuel and how it couldn't have been, you know, the jets that got down the cat. Or if you look at the, all of the conspiracy theories around Kennedy's assassination. It couldn't have been that one lone gunman did this. That is, there are events that need to be explained, and they're explained through a conspiracy. And sometimes they're true. And I could talk about true conspiracies, too. Um, but what we have today is this really quite novel thing of conspiracy without the theory. And I'd say just two quick things about it. One is, as I said earlier, that it's sheer assertion, no mm -hmm. evidence, no argument. At the inaugural, when uh, Donald Trump said that uh, it was the biggest inaugural crowd ever in history, and the next day the National Park Service published photos that showed that the crowd was modest, and his automatic reaction was the photos were doctored. Yes. No evidence, no argument. So um, that's the first thing. And sometimes there's not even anything to be explained. And your, and your example of Pizzagate is an excellent one. There was, there was nothing that had to be explained by this conspiracist claim about child sex trafficking in the basement. Mm -hmm. What it was was an expression of um, political animus of a very uh, dangerous and ugly kind. And the same thing is true of QAnon, which we can talk about if you like. 
Yeah, that would take up several hours. <laughs> that's that's to me yeah. that is the the primo conspiracy theory or conspiracy story as you would yeah. have it. Uh, Joe Pierre, you mentioned critical thinking, and I think it's easy for anyone on the side of an argument to dismiss the other side by saying, "We, well, you, you know, you're just not thinking critically. You're just not thinking clearly." But there are critical thinking holes in some of these stories. Can we take, in fact, QAnon? And if we accept Nancy's idea that there's nothing to explain here, but it's being explained anyway, what's happening in the mind of someone who doesn't see that there's no there there? Well, I would say a couple of things. The first is that um, I think it's generally a, a sort of myth that human beings think rationally and logically all the time. Uh, and even that we hold our beliefs based on evidence. Um, that's certainly sometimes the case, uh, and it's certainly how we encourage belief and hypothesis formation in science. But that's not really how normal people um, hold beliefs. We often hold beliefs based on trust in sources. In other words, what someone, someone else told me or what, what experts uh, think. Uh, I do completely agree. I, I've never liked the term conspiracy theorist mm-hmm. because there are a few people who are experimenting and theorizing and testing hypotheses. Really, the vast majority of conspiracy belief, and particularly this age in the, in the era of the Internet, has to do with just people coming along uh, information somewhere and deciding that uh, they think it's true. Uh, and so conspiracy theist might be a, a technically more accurate term. And so, again, when we're talking about things like modern conspiracy theory beliefs or QAnon, I think it's really just a process of not trusting in authoritative sources. And then because of that, looking at all manner of uh, information or misinformation that that we then encounter. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's very clear from the political side, uh, as I'm sure Dr. Rosenblum will will testify to, uh, is that conspiracy theories have been a longstanding tool of political propaganda. Uh, And so that's certainly something that we're seeing now, where we're seeing conspiracy theories deliberately employed as ways of deflecting blame, um, ways of avoiding responsibility. And so when we support political leaders who are touting those conspiracy theories, um, then people become part of that, that process. And so it's not so much about critical thinking per se, a lot of this is about motivated reasoning and just believing what those on our team, as it were, uh, tell us. I want to stay with you for just a moment and then toss this back back to Nancy. And that is, Joe Pierre, armchair psychology, which is completely unqualified psychology, might say that people who glom onto these stories find some kind of empowerment when their natural feeling is being disempowered. In other words, if you're an insider and you know these things other people don't know, there's a feeling of power there, isn't there? Well, that's right. And that's where some of those individual cognitive quirks come in. So during times of political upheaval or societal crises, people who have more than, let's say, the average amount of a need for closure or certainty, COVID-19 is a great example where we don't have forthcoming information, uh, that those kind of heightened needs for an explanation are sometimes satisfied by conspiracy theory beliefs. Uh, and as you suggested, um, need for uniqueness, the need to feel special, the need to, to feel that I'm in on the secret truth that no one else knows about, that also seems to be a psychological predictor of belief. Mm. And so I think those kinds of 
individual motivations are important, particularly at times like this, where we're uh, stressed out, we're scared, we don't know what's coming, whether due to COVID or for that matter, for the November election. Um, and in that context of not feeling safe and secure, uh, conspiracy theories, at least in theory, seem to plug that gap. What we know, though, is that one of the ironies of conspiracy theories is they don't actually make people feel safe. They may be sought after due to the, the, the need or the desire to feel safe, but unsurprisingly, they don't actually make people feel safe because the narrative is something actually pretty scary. Yeah. I, now, that's interesting, Nancy, because if you look at that, if there is, for example, a politician of, of any seat, you know, the highest of power or down the line, who can assert the truth, quote unquote, truth of a conspiracy theory? Let's say, for example, Mike Pence appearing with someone from QAnon who subscribes to QAnon. It sounds as though that can play two sides of the same game. On the one hand, they're affirming those conspiracy theories just by lending their presence at the same time they can benefit from underlining the feelings of uncertainty. They can help to create a problem that at that point, oh, I can also help you solve it. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, I do. And I think that um, when I say this is conspiracy without the theory, one of the forms it takes is just sheer assertion. The election was rigged. But another form it takes is sort of, I'm just asking questions. I would like to know more. Innuendo. And I think it's cynical people. (laughs) Like Pence in the QAnon situation, who do this innuendo thing. I think that uh, Trump himself and, and the conspiracists who go along with him are, are not uh, using this purely instrumentally. Let me go back and um, agree with Joe about a few things and underscore them. One is that at this point, it's much more important, I think, to see conspiracism as a collective phenomenon than as individual psychology. We know a lot about the individual psychology. The collective is important. That what's happening when you espouse a conspiracy account is you're joining some sort of we, right? There's a group. There's a team. There's a, and then, then Angie, that you're absolutely right. That one of the uh, um, uh, uh, emotional uh, advantages of this, what, what you get, is the feeling that you're a cognoscenti, that you're in the know. That things are not what they seem, but you know that they that they are, and also sheer aggression, right? That these conspiracy claims are are performative aggression, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes very ugly. But I, I I'm going to take a but perhaps as a different line than Joe, and and say that it, there's a way in which belief is not the way best way to understand what conspiracy followers are doing that what they think is that the conspiracy claim is true enough. And what makes it true is not the facts. That is, if you asked all of the Republicans who say they agree with QAnon, well, is, it, is there really a sex ring? Is there really, you know, uh, um, are they really cutting off children's faces and using them as masks and so on and so on? The objective facts don't matter to them. It's true enough because QAnon or Pizzagate or the election is rigged are, is expressing a deeper truth. <laughs> that is the political truth of who our friends are and who our enemies are. And um, that's why I, I don't like belief and I don't like conspiracy theory to describe the really quite unusual situation we have mm-hmm. we have now. You know, in the 
couple minutes that we have before the break, and I'm going to go to this just very briefly, just to say that there are political conspiracy ideas, theory stories on both sides. This is according to Joseph Husinski and Joseph Parent, who wrote a book called American Conspiracy Theories. And they say such accusations are made more against conservatives because the media tends to have more liberals covering these things, but that they're in fact on both sides, on left and right, you find conspiracy theories, some just more covered than others. Uh, Nancy, does that jibe with your research? No. No. um, I think they they do some very good research, but they also tend to normalize this uh, in a way that I think uh, shouldn't be normalized. The conspiracism that we have, this conspiracy without the theory, this making this claim about the election being rigged or the CDC being full of subversive scientists who want to undo President Trump, it is coming from the right. There is no symmetry here. This is a right-wing phenomenon, and we could talk a little bit about why and how what makes it so effective. That's not to say that people on the left aren't, don't think in terms of conspiracy. They do. But they are old-fashioned conspiracy theorists. If you watch Rachel Maddow in the first years of Trump's um, uh, presidency, she was looking but finding patterns and dots and evidence all over the place. I mean, she was doing major research. I'm going to ask you to hold that thought. We're going to come back to Rachel Maddow and to my two guests in just a moment here. You're listening to In Deep. I'm Angie Cuero, and we're talking about conspiracy theories and stories, why they're so bought into with Dr. Nancy Rosenblum and Dr. Joseph Pierre. You're listening to In Deep, and we will be right back.
Welcome back to In Deep. I'm Angie Cuero, and we're talking about QAnon and the Seth Rich death and all of the things that, for whatever reason, have become, rather than established fact and stories that have underlying, say, journalism behind them, there are ideas that float around, that catch on, and we don't know how to counter them. And they are playing an unusually heavy-duty part in our politics and the coming election. Why we're giving this hour to this today on In Deep. And we had to interrupt you, Nancy Rosenblum. You were talking about how this was, was being displayed on the Rachel Maddow show, and I had to cut you off. Do you want to finish that thought? I was just distinguishing between people on the left who still do old-fashioned conspiracy theory, dots and patterns and explanations and research, and that the new conspiracism, that is the sheer assertion that dispenses with evidence and argument, uh, is coming from the right. And it's coming from the White House. I, I don't know, Joe Pierre, if it's appropriate to ask you about the political slant, because you know, you're not here as a political spokesperson. You're here as a mental health professional. So do you want to go there or not? Oh, definitely. Uh, I, I mean, I don't think and talk about conspiracy theories at the present time uh, without talking about policy. So uh, actually, if it's okay, let me just respond to two things Dr. Uh, Rosenblum mentioned. Um, so, you know, if you look at the, the existing research about the, the political slant aspect of conspiracy theories, uh, I think the point that they are represented on both sides of the fence is really more of a historical comment. Uh, I think at least U.S. today, it's, it would be hard to make that claim. Uh, and in part, the, the reason, and again, I'm going to tread into politics uh, outside of psychology and psychiatry, but it's, it's research has shown pretty clearly that when we talk about political conspiracy theories, those are really often embraced by populist movements. Um, and that's really what we're seeing now, why so much conspiracy theory is aligned with conservatism because conservatism and the election of Donald Trump really came out of a populist movement that, that we've seen you know, across the world actually right now. And one of the core aspects of populism is this idea of discrediting elites. Uh, and I think it's very clear that that is a current uh, tactic that's being used uh, in order to, uh, as Dr. Robeson-Bloom says, to raise questions, to cast doubt uh, to create what some people have described as a post-truth world. Mm -hmm. uh, political theorists like Hannah Arendt uh, talked very poignantly about this decades ago, about how once you lead people to not believe in facts and question the very nature of truth, then those kinds of people can become easily manipulated. Uh, and I do think we see very good evidence of that in politics now. Uh, and so when President Trump and other conservatives talk about QAnon, they are sometimes careful not to uh, endorse it wholeheartedly. But President Trump has also been pretty open about saying, well, you know, these are my fans and, you know, <laughs> I'm going to take it kind of thing. So there's a clear advantage to to using conspiracy theories uh, as, as a part of the, the political narrative right now um, on the right. You know, since you bring up Donald Trump specifically, I, I, I do want to go there because how these stories progress from the fringe to the central debate, I think is very instructive. And Nancy, you appeared in a frontline documentary called The United States of Conspiracy, and they profiled Alex Jones in there. And within that show, there was this remarkable montage of tales that came first out of Alex Jones' mouth and subsequently out of Donald Trump's mouth. So let's listen to the montage they put together. Hillary is the founder of ISIS, along with Obama. 
Was Cruz's father linked to JFK assassination? Cuban, hired by Lee Harvey Oswald, bears striking resemblance to Cruz. And, you know, his father was with Lee Harvey Oswald prior to Oswald's being, uh, you know, shot. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. I said he's going to use executive orders to go after our guns. The president's thinking about signing an executive order where he wants to take your guns away. You hear this one? These people are not freaking humans, okay? Hillary Clinton is a demon damned to hell. He made a deal with the devil. She's the devil. He made a deal with the devil. All right. That's really unsettling, Nancy. This, 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 are we in an historically unprecedented area where this is going on, where, where such a direct conduit to the highest seat of power is so well established and documented? Yes, I think so. I think that we have a president who is not using this purely instrumentally, the way I went talking about the use of untruth or lies. I think he has a genuinely conspiracist mindset that was evident long before he became president. He has his own sense of reality. He wants to own reality. And he has, for a variety of reasons as president, the capacity to impose that reality on the nation. This is a striking and frightening thing. Part of what gives him that capacity are the instruments of the presidency. And partly it's the supineness, the cynicism or the submission of an entire major political party that has gone along with this. So I, I, I guess that's the first thing I would say um, on this subject. And I really would urge people not to talk so much about Pizzagate and these sort of nonsense conspiracy claims and to look at the ones that are doing serious political damage perhaps irreparable political damage, the ones that uh, delegitimize our foundational democratic institutions. Mm -hmm. Do you find those more vulnerable to persuasion? I mean, in other words, if we focus on those, is the chance we can overcome them or is our job to just try to pierce the balloon and hope people are paying attention? Well, you're, you're getting the, to the question of, of what to do. And I think what to do should follow from the question of what's happening. Mm -hmm. What what is the destruction going on and um, the delegitimation of foundational democratic institutions is very easily documented. That is all knowledge producing institutions of the government and outside have been delegitimized that from like this right now during the middle of a pandemic, the scientists at the CDC, the epidemiologists and doctors, um, but also, and I think this is the most important one. Um, uh, uh, political parties. They are the defining institution of a representative democracy. They depend upon the view that the opposition is a legitimate opposition, that it's not to be banned or eliminated or locked up, right? And we ha now have a president in a political party that is in a position of saying day in and day out that the opposition party are traitors, that they're scum, and they have become delegitimized as a normal democratic opposition. Well, okay, Joe Pierre, let's take this idea of triaging between those that really don't have a direct impact on the things that are most critical to our foundations and try to discard those that are, you know, more trivial in their in their impact. Do you have any thoughts on that, on, on triaging for attack? Well, when I talk about conspiracy theory belief, uh, and, and this is sort of the way we think about beliefs or even pathological beliefs like delusions in psychiatry, uh, I like to think of them as existing on a continuum. 
Uh, and part of that continuum would be how strongly we believe in something, our belief conviction. Another part of that continuum might be preoccupation. And so um, it's absolutely correct that when we think about conspiracy theory beliefs, and sometimes I'd make an analogy to, let's say, religious beliefs or belief in the Bible. There are people who might believe the metaphorical meaning of a conspiracy belief. Uh, and then there are others who are more literalists who might actually believe that there are lizard people who are you know, operating uh, our, our government. And I think it's probably safe to say that the majority of people are metaphorical believers. Now, we may have to worry a bit more about the ones who, you know, end up investigating Pizzagate because they become a little bit more literalist. But the people who are voting, and, and I think the, the populace, as it were, are really the metaphorical believers. Um, there was an article in The Atlantic not too long ago that made a great comparison to the birther movement, which, of course, was in large part fueled, if not started by um, President Trump. Uh, it may have been that there weren't so many people who necessarily believed that uh, President Obama was not born here in the U.S., but there were lots of people who found that theory, as it were, attractive uh, just as a way of delegitimizing de him as a president. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the parallel that we're seeing now with QAnon. Some of the details about Satan worshiping pedophiles might be a little bit out there, uh, but the narrative that we're in this sort of climactic apocalyptic battle between good and evil and the evil side, according to QAnon, are the uh, radical left liberals. I mean, that essentially is the current GOP platform. And so, so that's how I sort of triage or make this distinction. It's really about what is the central narrative? What is the metaphorical aspect? And then, yeah, we, sometimes we do have to be worried uh, about the people who take it more literally, and particularly the people who hold this belief so strongly that they feel like they have to take some kind of active role, whether it's to, quote unquote, self-investigate uh, or something more um, uh, aggressive. Let's talk about the idea of mental health and, and con belief in conspiracies. And there was something that happened right in front of us this week that may may be an issue of mental health. Two days ago, a Department of Health and Human Services communications official, Michael Caputo, just went off on social media. And I think in any other era, what he had to say would have set off alarms everywhere about his mental health, whether it's appropriate for him to even be in office. So let me give you a, a fairly longish summary from The New York Times, because they put together this list of the accusations that came out in his social media rant. He said that career government scientists were engaging in sedition in their handling of the pandemic. Left-wing hit squads were preparing for armed insurrection after the election. He accused the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention of harboring a resistance unit determined to undermine Donald Trump, even if the opposition bolsters the COVID death toll suggested he personally could be in danger from opponents of the administration. If you carry guns, he said, buy ammunition, ladies and gentlemen, because it's going to be hard to get. And finally, he went further saying his physical health was in question and his mental health has, quote, definitely failed. I don't like being alone in Washington. The shadows in the ceiling in my apartment there alone, shadows are so long. Joe, let me stay with you for just a minute here and, and ask, where is this intersection between what in fact might be somebody's short-circuiting mental health and what's someone who's just buying into some of the crazy things we're hearing? Well, I talked about the cognitive courts associated with belief in conspiracy theories. Uh, and one of those is actually paranoia uh, and something called uh, schizo schizotopy, 
which is a sort of schizophrenia-like cluster of symptoms. And so in as much as conspiracy theories are muted, rooted in mistrust, they certainly can take on this hypertrophied form, uh, hypertrophied form that treads uh, into the territory of paranoia. And so I'm not going to you know, engage in any kind of armchair diagnosis of, course. of individuals. Uh, but it's absolutely uh, true that sometimes people's conspiracy theory beliefs become uh, really more overtly paranoid in nature. And one of the especially one, one distinction that I often make about how to separate conspiracy theories from delusions is that classically delusions are held by individuals. They're not really supposed to be group beliefs, although there have been some exceptions uh, in history. Um, but one of the things that makes uh, delusions, uh, symptoms of psych psychotic disorders, uh, so idiosyncratic and unshareable is that they offer a self-referential component, uh, meaning that the belief, uh, the paranoid belief is about me, I'm in danger. Mm -hmm. Whereas conspiracy theories are generally not about the individual themselves, beliefs about 9-11, about JFK, those are about world events. And so when we start hearing narratives that aren't just about the external world and world events, but are about the individual, that certainly is a kind of red flag for uh, wondering whether or not there are some mental health issues involved. Mm -hmm. Nancy, how does this play out historically? I mean, we have had leaders who are mentally incapacitated. We've seen that happen. It's not, not unheard of. Does that do the things that come out of the mouth of someone who is in a high position of power bear the the imprimatur of sanity, even if it may not be there? How have we seen that play out historically? I think that for the most part, historically, uh, political leaders who use conspiracy uh, are using it in, a, in, a, in a, what we now call weaponized or instrumental way, that they know what they're doing, they're doing it to a purpose. And also, by and large, the conspiracy claim that they make is the single big claim, like the Jews are undermining Germany, right? Mm -hmm. What we have... Day, I think is really quite extraordinary. That is a, a president who has his own notion of reality and wants to impose it on the nation. And his notion of reality extends to everything that happens. It's, he doesn't give one conspiracy claim. He makes conspiracy claims right and left. Um, and this, his lies are also right and left all the time, but they're sort of ephemera. But his conspiracy claims about the deep state and so on go, go on and on. Uh, they are powerful. They extend to everything, and um, and he has followers who 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 take it, uh, you know, as as what's deeply true about politics today. I wanted to say one thing about the Caputo. Mm -hmm, please, and <laughs> maybe Joe will agree with this. It did strike me as a cry for help. <laughs> Whatever else it was, it was a cry for help, but. But if we take that aside, what he was actually saying um, is exactly what Trump and the Republicans have been saying. That is, that in every institution where there's any kind of balking at Trump's what Trump wants, in this case, his assessment of the pandemic and what needs to be done about it, these people are subversive. They're out to get him. They're seditious. Right? So in, in that respect, his claim was absolutely the political conspiracy claim that's being made. And when he talks about getting armed he's, and buying your ammunition, of course, it's very dramatic. 
But rogue violence is something that this administration has uh, provoked Mm -hmm. and has applauded and has, you know, if you think about Trump and everybody says he's unempathic, uh, the only people he has empathy for (laughs) are people who engage in rogue violence. And he does. So I think the Caputo wasn't some crazy out out in left field. He was saying in a very dramatic and inappropriate, even he knew, way, the, the conspiracy claims that are out there today um, coming from the White House. Joe? Yeah, well, uh, the thing that just came to mind as we're talking about this is that, and, and you know, the second most common question that I get about conspiracy theories is how do you talk to somebody who believes in conspiracy theories? It's on my uh, list. <laughs> so, so just to give a preview of that, I mean, I think the, the difficult thing is really goes back to how we hold beliefs and the idea that we hold beliefs based on evidence. Uh, And certainly if you go on social media or places where people are engaging in so-called debate, there is this back and forth and sometimes it involves evidence. And uh, as was mentioned, you know, claims about, you know, what, what temperature uh, combustion would have to occur to topple the world trade center. I mean, there is that level of discourse that goes on, but again, really what it often boils down to is trust in different sources And what the current conspiracy theory speech is, particularly from President Trump, is really about changing the evidentiary standards, right? It's not really about evidence. Hold that thought for just a second, Joe. We're up against a break. Hold that thought. I do want to come back to that. We're going to try to stay solution-oriented in our next segment because we all obviously have a big mess to deal with. Stick around for all of that. I'm Angie Coyer. You're listening to Indie. They're laughing, they're talking about me. 
Welcome back to In Deep. We're in the deep, dark world of conspiracies here for this hour. And we've been talking for the most part about political theories. Those are the ones that are endangering our democracy, the election, and everything that falls into those two categories. We're talking to Dr. Nancy Rosenblum. She is a co-author of the new book, A Lot of People Are Saying, The New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy. And behind Psychology Today's website column, Psych Unseen, Dr. Joseph Pierre. He's health sciences clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Joe, you were talking about how to deal with people, how to deal with these ideas that are coming out of their head. What is a rational attack for that? Well, what I, what I was saying before we get on to, to the how-to is really why it's so difficult to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that is really because the evidentiary standards when you debate someone with conspiracy theories are really fundamentally different. We're not arguing about facts. We're not arguing about evidence. We're either arguing about the source of information. So, for example, if we're talking about the anti-vaccine movement, we might say, hey, look, there's been many studies showing that vaccines uh, do not cause autism. This has been shown in population data with hundreds of thousands of people. And the anti-vaccine perspective would be, yeah, but we don't trust those studies. Mm. Uh, that's an example of how, why, why arguing based on facts doesn't really work. Uh, and it's also why I love uh, Dr. Rosenblum's, the, the title of her, her book, a lot of people say, are saying, because that's certainly something we've seen President Trump use time and time and time again. Uh, he's essentially arguing from rumor, the idea that he might have heard somebody say this as if that's a fact and that's an, an evidentiary standard. I mean, that really is, I think, unprecedented, um, you know, in terms of a major American political leader making arguments on those kinds of grounds. Mm-hmm. And so the, those kind of barriers make it really difficult to, to try to change people's minds or, or to try to convince them with facts. Uh, and, we, and we know that for the most part, unfortunately, that that's not a very effective strategy. Uh, Nancy, did you want to get on this? Yeah, I wanted to follow up on what Joe was saying. I- Uh, The way I would put it is that um, what we have here in the country today is a divide about what it means to know something. Mm. Uh, What what does it mean to know something? And I think this has become a deeper and more potent divide than even just partisanship. It's an unbridgeable divide. What does it mean to know something? And all of us know most of what we know. We take it on faith from other people, right? Our experience gives us very little of what we need to know in order to lead a life. And so the question is, what is the community that you put your faith in when you say that you know something? And for conspiracists today, they put their faith in Trump or in Alex Jones, right? And for most of us, the rest of us, we put our faith in communities that um, believe that in self-correction, right? That is, that knowledge is cumulative, it's aggregative, we make mistakes, there are errors, but we have communities that, professional communities, that correct these things, whether it's science or any other kind of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And this divide about what it means to know, know something is an absolutely unbridgeable divide, and it, 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 it really is an end politics, because there's no way of arguing uh, or convincing one another. Well, isn't one of the complicating factors that a lot of the things that we're finding in the news that sound like conspiracies are not Russia meddling in U.S. elections, um, election machines that are hooked up to the Internet 
changing a person's vote for a, for a Democrat over to a vote for a Republican. I mean, we do see documentation on these things. They do hold it does turn out to be true, but they sound like conspiracy theories. So it's it's hard to even know what to believe. Well, they are conspiracy theories. There is a conspiracy <laughs> by the Russians to, to interfere. And it's a conspiracy theory because there's evidence. And the, But there's only evidence for you if you think that the intelligence agencies, at least in this, in this regard, um, have information that's uh, valid. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, if you think that Russia didn't do it, some fat guy, you know, 300-pound guy in the basement did it. <laughs> the, the, the source of information that you trust is Donald Trump, then there's no, there's no bridging it. I said earlier that the consequence of this for politics in America or for democracy in America is the delegitimation of our foundational institutions, whether it's parties or knowledge-producing institutions. And I just wanted to say that what delegitimation means, because it's more than just mistrust. Americans are always mistrustful of government. This is sort of built into our political culture where skepticism, and often rightly so. Delegitimation is not mistrust. It says that this institution or these scientists um, have, have no longer has any meaning or any value or authority for us. Think about that. The CDC has no meaning, value, or authority. Mm. Um, FBI has no meaning, value or, value, or authority. That is, there's no reason to give it our consent or to honor anything that it, that it says. That's delegitimation. And when you ask about what you can do about conspiracists, uh, the, the related and I think in a sense deeper question is, what do you do once institutions have been delegitimated in this, this way? We don't know what to do. We know how democracy got legitimated. We're watching how it gets delegitimated. We don't know how to correct that at all. We are at a really critical part. Have we any even hints from history? I mean, I know you've got the historical perspective on this. Have we even the slightest hint as to where to start to regrant legitimacy to our, to our institutions? Yes. I mean, I think that if you think that the majority of the American population really does like democratic institutions and party competition and so on and so forth, then over time, if you get rid of the conspiracists in chief in the White House, and if uh, you no longer have a major political party that whose bread and butter is conspiracy claims, then um, you can, to some extent, reconstitute these institutions. But let, let me just say, when you delegitimate an institution, the way that Trump and his administration has done, you affect its functioning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, not just, it's just not just a matter of belief in what you think about it. It's what it's doing. And once these institutions become dysfunctional, like the post office or the Justice Department or whatever, then, then people no longer you know, think that they're legitimate. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. So you not only have to get rid of conspiracy, you have to rebuild institutions so that they function. And that's a very long haul. That's why this isn't going to be over in an election. Uh, Joe Pierre, I can't help but wonder about the individual people that you see and how this plays out for the individual, because the things that we have relied on, the post office delivers our mail and is not going to get in the way of the election. The CDC is married to medicine. The Department of Justice is about justice. All of these basic foundational beliefs that we have, and all of them are crumbling. 
What does that do to the individual? And I don't mean someone who buys into conspiracies. I mean the average person looking for security in day-to-day life. What does that do to them? Well, it certainly doesn't help, does it? No, no. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I tend to be a sort of pessimistic person myself. But, but I think if we want to kind of talk about where the hope is and, and what strategies we can use, you know, either at the level of individuals or more politically, you know, there, there have been polls in the past year uh, suggesting that, for example, trust or faith in the CDC in the midst of COVID has actually been quite good. Mm. Uh, and, and I haven't seen similar polls about the post office, but I mean, uh, I, I've been a huge fan of the post office for decades. I, I still can't believe that we can deliver mail, you know, across the country for 40 or 50 cents and it gets there safely. So my point is, I think there's actually a lot of people who do still have faith in those institutions. And I think if we're trying to fight against that decline, we have to appeal to, to that. Now, there's certainly some people uh, who that's not going to be effective. But I think if there's some hope, it's that there is some more universal uh, faith in those institutions. Um, the other comment I'd have is that there's often this irony of conspiracy theories. And, and we touched on it when we talked about um, the Russia investigation. And the irony is that people who believe in conspiracy theories often don't see the uh, real conspiracy that's right under their noses. And so I mentioned the anti-vaccine movement. Well, you know, that movement started uh, from fraudulent research by a physician that was published in a medical journal uh, and took a decade to retract uh, and learned that that physician had uh, financial conflicts of interest, uh, that uh, he would benefit from discrediting uh, the vaccine. And so in a similar way, uh, if we look at QAnon, there's actually increasing evidence these days that uh, QAnon might be uh, a, essentially a profit-making scheme by either one or several individuals. Over the weekend, there was good evidence that came out about who was um, uh, operating the so-called QMAPS uh, website that distributes that information. So I think if we kind of peek behind the curtain, as it were, whether we're talking about Russia and the disinformation campaign um, of, of uh, Vladimir Putin, that there often are these real conspiracies. And if there are these, if there are people, if, if conspiracy theories fulfill something for people, then, okay, let's shed light on the ones that uh, are actually supported by good evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that thing about conspiracy theories, people hang on to them because they say, look, look sometimes they're true. And indeed, sometimes they are true. And I think a good strategy is to highlight that going forward. Uh, Your most recent column in Psychology Today under the Psych Psych Unseen label is four keys to help someone claim out of the QAnon rabbit hole. And you were saying that you were a pessimist. And it kind of comes through in that you're not promising anybody that you can get someone out of the QAnon hole. But can you give us just an idea of what the steps would be? Sure. Well, you know, just to, just to reinforce the pessimism for a second, uh, you know, there have been a lot of accounts in the media about relationships that have been destroyed over QAnon, uh, mm-hmm. and especially marriages and, and people who have you know more intimate uh, relationships. So, uh, so I think the answer to, to how to help people out uh, on the individual level when we're talking about our loved ones, uh, first we have to kind of think about how deep they are down the rabbit hole. That goes back to what we we're saying before about are you a more of a metaphorical believer or, or are you a literalist? And indeed, I might be much more pessimistic if we're talking about a true believer who's a literalist. 
regardless, though, the, the main way and the main way even someone would work on uh, delusions in the context of psychotherapy would be to try to establish a relationship or in this case, maintain a relationship, maintain a connection with somebody, let them know that you're there for them. And maybe if you're able to draw a healthy boundary and say, look, you know, we're not going to talk about uh, Satan worshiping pedophiles today, but, you know, let's talk about sports or let's talk about the weather. So I think that's that's one important way to to at least maintain a connection uh, between relationships. In general, I don't actually recommend that people jump down the rabbit hole and start researching it and looking for evidence and debating with people. Really what we want, uh, I think, the, the healthy path for someone to, to turn away from is to really unplug and get out of that rabbit hole and get out of thinking about this all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, going in healthy recreational activities, reinvest in your relationships, you know, find a job or, or you know, re, re, rededicate yourself to your job. Um, I mean, those things are easier said than done, but it's really, really about that. It's really about getting off the, the stupid internet, unplugging from social media and, you know, living your life. I do want to take this over to you, Nancy, and this is from rather than the mental health perspective, the political perspective, because there are people who are going to believe harmful things and spread harmful theories slash ideas slash beliefs right up to and including Election Day. And from what you have learned from how this has played out in various times and various countries, what is the political strategy to overcoming this kind of messaging. And I'm guessing that you have one of two ways to go. You either work to persuade people to, you know, kind of triage who's persuadable and talk to them and try to, you know, bring them onto same land, or you just try to outnumber them at the voting booth. Just, you know, discard them as a viable political ally and just try to outnumber them at the voting booth. What's your take on that? (laughs) I think it's certainly uh, outvoting them. (laughs) <laughs> it, when we're talking about an election, then it matters uh, that you outvote them. Yes. <laughs> you know, but, the, but the problem for people today is that um, a large part of the population now thinks that this election is rigged if Trump doesn't win. And there's the fear that uh, he, he won't go, he won't leave, and that they, he or his people will instigate violence. I think that we're in, in a remarkable time. I mean, for those of us who lived through the nightmare version of Bush v. Gore, because you really do have a president of a party that is not willing to let go of power. Mm-hmm. And unless they are decisively in, uh, voted, and perhaps even then, uh, there's no getting rid of them. But I, I wanted to go back to this um, question of how you encourage people who uh, are are not cult, you know, are not conspiracists, and uh, and how this thing can change. And in a way, we're seeing it change in front of our eyes. That if if Americans were disoriented by all of this, and they have been um, confused and disoriented and angry and withdrawn. COVID has changed that. I mean, the phrase I use is that reality bites. <laughs> that when you're facing a pandemic and disease and death, um, that, then, then saying that this thing is a hoax or it's going to go away next summer or we're going to have the vaccine in two weeks, um, people don't swallow it anymore. And I think that, that that's the answer, that when, when uh, reality is so... Uh, uh, enveloping and significant for, to you that you can't withdraw from it, then um, 
than this president and party that wants to own reality and impose it on you, uh, that they're talking more and more about violence. Uh, Joe made the point that he's a pessimist. Do you feel the same way? Uh, I'm an agnostic. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm an agnostic. I can. I think. That, I think that most Americans have had it with this now, mm-hmm. and um, I think that, as I say, the rebuilding institutions and legitimacy is going to take a long time and be very hard. But I think uh, the 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 principal force and power behind this will be gone. He'll, he'll still be doing it out there in society, but but it, it won't be it won't be um, using the presidency to do it. Do you think, Joe? And I'll have to give you the last but, word on this. Do, do you think that having Trump removed from power will play a strong, significant role in tamping some of this down? Well, I, I guess the real question is just how big is behind President Trump? I mean, he's a con- con- convenient uh, central figurehead to focus all of our ire. But the reality is that he wouldn't, uh, you know, be in the position he were if he didn't have a grand backing from the rest of the Republican Party. Um, and, you know, in my sense of politics, and I'm not a political scientist, but I think what we see with authoritarians in history is that they often are born out of populist movements and they have the support of the people in the early goings until things get to a point where people start to realize that that leader does not have the best interest of the populist at heart. And so I think, um, you know, I said I'm a pessimist, but you could argue that all pessimists are closet optimists uh, who just don't want to jinx things. So, so I mean, I think that the, the hope is that we may be now starting to see some institutions, whether it's military personnel or the post office union, kind of looking around saying, wait a minute, like, I thought you were on our side, and now it looks like you're not. I, I think there's a responsibility from a strategic perspective to sort of win over those those votes. And you know, at that point, I have to let you both go, but I thank you so much for a great conversation. Dr. Joseph Pierre, Psychology Today's website author, Psych Unseen, and Dr. Nancy Rosenblum, The New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy, People Are Talking. You have been listening to In Deep. You can find information about our show at indeepradio.com. Thanks to Damian Miner at the board, KALW engineer Phil Hartman, and to the general manager of KALW, Tina Pomichuan. I'm Angie Coral. See you next week on In Deep. I know it's going to get better.